Welcome to another episode of Electable. I'm Deb Chubb, and this is sponsored by the Indiana Women's Action Movement. Today, we are super lucky to have uh, State Representative Carrie Hamilton with us from House District 87. Um, she is an outstanding legislator, first of all, but what we are going to talk about is her experience attending the COP26. Uh, of course, uh, I'll explain that because it took me a while to figure out what that meant. Uh, COP, C-O-P, stands for Conference of the parties uh, and 26 uh, stands for the 26th conference of the parties uh, that has happened. So since 1992, uh, 197 countries have come together to talk about climate change. And um, it, it, it's great, but it does kind of make you feel like, wow, really for 26 years and here's where we are. So anyway, terrific UN sponsored event uh, happening over in Glasgow. And Representative Hamilton was able to attend. So, and you were not there as a legislator, you were there as a private citizen. But I want you to tell us, first of all, what happened there? What happened at COP26? Why is this such a big deal? Wow. Well, thanks, Deb, first for inviting me. It's uh, so good to be here with you. We've known each other a long time. And I'm, this is so much fun that this is my first time being on your, your show. Um, so uh, COP26, so, so much happened there, right? It's, um, I wasn't in the room with the delegates in the negotiations. That's a very specific, that's the key linchpin of what, all, what happens at COP where every nation has a delegate sitting down and negotiating the next round of commitments on climate change. Um, so we've all read about that. I've certainly read a lot about that. At the conference, we're all, most of us, most of the people in, in Glasgow were on their phones reading about what was going on in the room across the hallway. <laughs> but for the rest of us, which is the majority of people there, about 25,000 people depend on, de, de, uh, descend on the event. Um, I was fortunate enough to be in the blue zone, which is the main area that includes the delegates and the negotiations. But it also includes pavilions, which is sort of like a big conference booth for many, many nations for private companies, for lots of non-governmental organizations, for nonprofits from across the globe that are working on climate change. And so it's a really energizing gathering, um, conversations left and right amongst these different parties, trying to figure out how they can help move the needle in their universe, whatever it is they're working on. Um, and I was there, as you mentioned, not as a legislator who's worked on climate change issues for, since I was elected five years ago, um, but as an environmental professional, I've been in the environmental field for 25 years. And um, uh, this summer, uh, I started working for a climate tech company. Um, so a growing part of the climate solution, right, is technology being part of the solution. And my company, a Swedish-based company, had a presence in the Swedish pavilion. Um, so I was there as a guest of the Swedish government and my company, Climate View. Um, so that was a really interesting perspective where, um, and I'll just share, my company provides a climate planning tool, an online software program um, to help cities plan their climate action. Um, and it's cutting edge and wonderful. And I can, you know, expound on that at another time. But um, we, I, I got to sit down with, for example, the Secretary of Environment for the country of Argentina and uh, the Deputy Secretary of Environment for the country of Ecuador. I spent time with 
state legislators from other states, other United States states that are taking big steps on climate. So that both provided inspiration for me as a legislator, um, also some frustration about things we haven't been able to accomplish that we have tried to do here that they're accomplishing in other states. Um, um, I also met with some Indiana University students that were there. There's a, a professor in Bloomington who has worked on um, some major climate research projects and was able to bring students over from the School of Public and Environmental Affairs and the School of International Affairs um, to this momentous event where they sat and learned. And there are talks all day long in all of the pavilions, panels and discussions and um, just uh, overstimulated for 16 hours a day, every day. <laughs> Woo, there you go. There's, there's a bit of a summary. <laughs> yeah. Well, so how did you feel? I mean, uh, you know, us back here, we really kind of ended up, I think, with not a great um, outcome. Um, you know, we heard Greta Thunberg just walking around saying, blah, 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 uh, that no one was really doing anything. And in fact, you know, as you know, hundreds of millions of dollars have been pledged uh, over the years to countries who uh, are victims of climate change that, you know, we created, that industrialized nations created. Um, and we promised to give them money to help them adapt to climate change, but none of that money has been spent. And so how did it feel coming home? Did you feel like, I don't know, like anything was accomplished? You know, um, certainly there is some frustration overall, right? For sure. Undoubtedly, um, uh, you kind of did a nice job of sub summarizing where a lot of that frustration comes from. But I will share that this is my first time going. And I talked to a lot of people who have been there many years um, for, for several years in a row. And there was from everyone that I spoke with who had been there before, um, a sense of shifting in the dialogue from planning and data collection and hand wringing to action and the financial world being at the table, there were more banks and investors there than ever before. That is important and a big step in the right direction. There's also so much, so much going on at the local and state level um, it, here in the United States that I learned about over there, but also around the globe, you know, lots of local action. Um, the youth voice was powerful. Um, I see that here in Indiana. I've seen that at the state house the last couple of years. There's some really engaged young people in Indiana and they're part of a global movement. Um, and uh, they're, they're being heard. Um, not, as, not as much as they'd like, not as quickly as they'd like, but I do feel like I, I haven't given up hope. I didn't walk away um, with a hanging head. I really um, actually came away with more hope. Um, well, that's great. Yeah, it is. That's great. Is. Well, and I do, you know, like you said, I've known you a long time and I do know that you are just an eternal optimist. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> you are. <laughs> and that's great. I mean, and you have to be, you have to be uh, in this kind of work. So um, uh, now I, you know, I want to bring that back to Indiana. So um, the, the work that you're doing is, is terrific and it's interesting. You have done so much great work here in Indiana. I, I, you know, I know that you were responsible for the recycling program at, when the Super Bowl was in Indianapolis and that was a huge deal. Uh, and that was really amazing achievement that you did um, because often that's the last thing people think about and it 
you know, it just gets lost. So, um, but you did well, an amazing job with that. Well, thank you. And, and it wasn't, of course, just me. It's always, it's always a team, right? And yeah. uh, there are a lot of us that worked on that. And we did have, I think, the uh, greenest Super Bowl, the least wasteful Super Bowl up to that point in the history. And maybe still today, I'm not sure. That's um, right. I remember that. <laughs> that was amazing. Um, I remember being interviewed by a Japanese television station about the compost project we did at some of the key hotels. Anyway. Um, it's wonderful. So tell us what you're doing <laughs> but, now. But here's, here's what, I'll, what I want to talk about is the opportunity for Indiana at this moment. So as the world is shifting and saying, we have to invest more in renewables, as the utilities are realizing, you see that up in Northwest Indiana, renewables are becoming the most cost-effective solution. So they're investing more and more. How do we speed that along? Where does public policy come in to make sure that happens as quickly and as smartly as possible? And how do we as a manufacturing state add as much value as we can to be part of the solution to climate change? So we have a lot of opportunity there. So this past year, I worked, I reached across the aisle and worked with a colleague on a bill to create the new Electric Vehicle Product Commission. So this is an example. So we have 100,000 auto manufacturing jobs in Indiana. It's a lot of good jobs. And we need to keep those jobs. And we can only keep them if, we're, if we start to make electric vehicles, because that is the future. So we have an opportunity here to help help that industry pivot quickly so that we keep those jobs, so that we hopefully grow those jobs while truly being part of the solution to climate change. But we really miss an opportunity if we don't do that while at the same time greening our grid as quickly as possible. So I really, my goal this legislative session, one of my goals is to make sure we start to talk about that in a, in a, in a more effective way, um, both that opportunity we have manufacturing and then to close the loop on that and be fully a part of the solution as a state, not just to send electric vehicles elsewhere or have them powered in Indiana with coal and other carbon sources, but let's power those electric vehicles with renewable energy right here in our state. Back to being a manufacturing state, we haven't strategically worked to build wind turbines and solar panels in our state. We need to work to attract those industries. Now, certainly there's some pricing issues with cheap solar panels from overseas, but there's still opportunity there for us. There are all sorts of parts and pieces to wind turbines and solar panels that we could be a part of making here in Indiana with our great steel area in Northwest Indiana. We make plastic and aluminum and, and uh, glass, you know, all the basic commodities that you need to make products um, we make here in Indiana. And we should be part of that um, solution to climate change, building out our renewable energy sector um, and electric vehicle charging stations. Um, just some examples. So if we can be really powerful about that economic opportunity, but again, be holistic in how we handle that. For example, another example is today we have a fee. If you buy an electric vehicle in Indiana, you pay an extra fee for the privilege of having a clean car, of buying a clean car. You pay $50 to the BMB. Um, we need to do away with that disincentive and maybe even provide a, an incentive for electric vehicle purchases in Indiana, along with you know, doing a better job or doing a job at all at the state policy level of incentivizing renewables within our electric sector. We've really, um, if anyone's paying attention to this issue, you know that as a state, we've gone backwards when it comes to um, trying to build renewable, uh, to provide renewables to customers in Indiana um, by making it harder for, for example, residents to put solar panels on their homes. 
Um, that's just one. And on our schools, we could be saving tax dollars right now if we, if we had more solar on schools, but we've taken away some of the structure to allow that to happen. And yeah, I, I don't know if you know, I sit on my local school board and we were, uh, we saw that opportunity and we like, you know, rammed that through before the law changed, um, right, so that we could get um, a return on, on that uh, investment. And it's, Excellent. you know, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's we yeah. solar panels at uh, eight or nine sites uh, in our school corporation and it's a wonderful thing. Thank so, you. I didn't know that. I know that some districts had done that. I didn't know you were part of doing that in your area. Thank you. Oh, and course. then your the children and, and everybody tied into that system can right. feel proud. To right. Be- well, and there's a whole educational uh, curriculum that goes with that. And it was really wonderful. And I really enjoyed, you know, being a part of that and learning about that. And, uh, you know, the kids monitor the, the, the electricity gathering on the meters in the middle school. And they take, you know, they watch it over time. They look at all these different things that have to do with it. They, you know, they understand it. And yeah. I mean, that's our next generation who's going to yeah. have a full understanding of, you know, solar energy production. So that's amazing. So I want to ask you a lot of the things you've talked about. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how the infrastructure bill money coming to the state could impact those ideas. I mean, how could we specifically use those dollars to promote the kind of manufacturing you're talking about? Well, so it's not clear yet how everything's going to filter through, um, but certainly there are opportunities. For example, we're hearing in the next round of infrastructure, there could be a big incentive for electric vehicle purchases. Well, again, if we're, we're that's, that's another reason for us to jumpstart and start making more EVs in Indiana and then buy them right here in Indiana. Um, there are a lot of opportunities with the federal dollars. I don't know how it's going to shake out for Indiana. I do think there will be an opportunity for Hoosiers to weigh in with the legislature uh, to help make sure those monies are directed in a, in a progressive, thoughtful way when it comes to being part of the solution. And I, something else I wanna lift up, Deb, when I talk about you know, being part of the solution to climate change, it's also just making sure we're being competitive into the future as a state, right? Not just creating those jobs, but really just thinking competitively moving forward. When, I, when we talk about renewables being more cost-effective, um, and you think that through, I mean, that's so powerful. And uh, Indiana has federal military facilities that are doing, that have significant solar and wind investments because, because of the um, energy independence part of that um, you know, equation, right? So there's so many important reasons to be uh, proactive when it comes to being more renewable. We get, we're getting pushback from opponents, from the carbon-based fuel source uh, providers, um, about reliability. Um, and of course, our energy grid has to be reliable, right? Of course it does. But that's absolutely the job of the utilities. And they're telling us, as is the, the regulatory agencies, the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission, for example, that we have a long way, way to go before we have to think about that concern. Um, that's not even really a concern because the utilities will make sure we have dispatchable energy to fill in any gaps, um, that we battery storage is coming down the road. It's, it's, it's in development. It's being used in certain places. It gets better every day. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that. I think that's going to be something people will be reading about in the upcoming legislative session, this d- debate between reliability and renewables as if renewables are the threat to reliability. And they're just not, it's not a, it's not a fair comparison. Right. So the other, um, you know, false, 
uh, equation out there is that um, we'll we won't have um, anyone trained for these jobs. People in the you know in the carbon based um, energy uh, industries will lose their jobs, their good jobs, and um, and and then what? Then you know the sky will fall. So. Um, I'm, I guess I'm wondering, you know, is part of that infrastructure bill going to provide for job training and really support that transition? Yeah, no, that's a really important piece. We don't want people to lose jobs that, for that reason, right? Um, first of all, there are already significantly more renewable energy jobs in Indiana than there are coal and other carbon-based fuel related jobs. Um, so we've, we've passed that uh, Delta a long time ago. Um, having said that, we still want to make sure that families aren't suffering because of this transition. Um, and so today already in Indiana, there, there are job training dollars available for if an, uh, the next coal mine is to close to help train those folks for new jobs um, and to help position jobs in those communities, which of course is a key piece. And yes, I believe my understanding is there will be more federal money to help with that transition, um, to make make sure we're not hurting, uh, you know, we, we uh, don't cause pain along the way because it doesn't have to be painful. Now, certainly, change itself is painful for some folks, but change is a, something we can't. That's always coming, right? So we have to handle right. it. <laughs> right. I think, uh, yeah, it's certainly beyond our control. This is not really a choice anymore, um, yeah. given the um, you know, given the terrible disasters that are happening, and and you know when people want to complain about immigration, um, you know, I always like to add, you know, be ready, be ready for climate migration. Climate migration, um, right? And refugee. You know, because yeah. people are coming from, you know, the South near the equator where it will be too dry and too hot to live. And they'll be coming our way. And right. that's, that's what's going to happen because we have created, <laughs> we've created a new climate and uh, people can't yeah. live there. So, um, so I think people need to consider that when they, you know, they think all these people coming and, you know, ask why, why are these people coming? (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. And that those, uh, there's both kind of the, there's a migration piece. There's also a refugee piece, right? I mean, we've really just seen migration so far, but there will be times and there are places in the world where there are true climate refugees, completely displaced they have to move. They have nowhere else to go. They have their, you know, bag on their back with their families and it's tragic. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we don't take bold steps right now, we have arguably the next 10 years really to keep that uh, increase down so that we don't have the the even more dramatic effects. I will, you hit on this, this last year of major weather events. Deb, I was in um, Portland and Seattle during the heat dome. Oh, wow. And it was downright scary. Um, to, you know, to feel the way you felt like you're, you could tell it was a stress on your body just to stand in the shade. Um, people were, they, I went to a farmer's market one morning in Portland and just that morning they had lost a young farmer in the field, um, who, who was up at 4am to harvest before the sun came up and still passed out and died from heat exhaustion. Um, the uh, scary realities that I think all Americans either have directly or indirectly begun to feel and because of that, unfortunately, it's taken that the public uh, we've seen the polling, right? Like people, there's not really denial anymore, but right. there is still public policy resistance because of entrenched special interests and people digging in their heels. And so that's so the challenge has changed. 
Um, and it's less, thankfully, but there's still this big challenge that we have to tackle. But thankfully, we're not fighting, you know, the question of if it's happening. And sadly, it's because it's been it's right in our face. Right. Well, and let's hope we're ready in Indiana because this is a place where people will want to come. I, I know personally right. people yeah. who have moved here um, from uh, Oregon uh, because their neighborhood burned, you know, uh, you know, just it all burned down. Um, wow. And so wow. they came here. So, um, so this is happening. And so we, we should be yeah. ready. So, yeah. um, and we'll have to be ready just to protect ourselves anyway um, from the effects of, of climate change around here. So, okay. So, um, what can we do? So as the money, you know, from the federal government comes in to address infrastructure, you know, this is, you know, of course, the golden opportunity. So what can we do to make sure that that money gets directed uh, towards sustainable uh, manufacturing and development in Indiana? So I'm going to uh, sing a tune that I often sing that I believe strongly in, that, and that is the power of coalitions at the state house. So I've been there for five years as a legislator in the super minority, all of those five years. And um, when I see progress, it's when a strong, diverse, well-organized coalition comes together to fight back against something or to fight for something. Um, one example is the expansion of predatory lending. Um, that industry has uh, taken its toll on Indiana and they wanted to expand uh, to provide 200% interest rate products a couple of years ago. It's crazy stuff. And the coalition of faith-based, um, military, veterans organizations, um, community service providers, on and on and on, that came together against that, stopped that powerful special interest from moving ahead in Indiana. We've seen, um, there was a coal bailout bill two years ago, back to environmental issues, that past, but in a much watered down firm uh, uh, position from where it started, thanks to a broad coalition. Last year, damaging wetlands bill. It passed. It's not good, but it was less bad. And, and the coalition has continued to grow around that issue and wants to be proactive moving forward. And it's, a, it's you know, so I, I think when it comes to this next year, two years, three years of federal dollars filtering through Indiana, we need to have our act together, bring in every voice that we can bring in, right? Young people, veterans groups, faith groups, we have those all in our coalition. We need to make sure we're targeted on key messages at key times. I think that can happen. Um, so I encourage anyone who cares about this to kind of plug in and, and help, help make sure that that coalition's pulled together and ready to move forward. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I know of many um, environmental organizations in Indiana who uh, come from very different angles and really, um, and they, last year, I mean, they really did. I mean, the, the coalitions that came together to oppose that uh, Senate bill uh, 386 that, you know, stripping uh, protections from uh, wetlands was enormous. Um, and it was it was really shocking that it passed even, you know, despite all that. So we'll, they'll just have to, you know, just um, get more energy. <laughs> they'll have to yeah. just kind of reinvigorate and get even stronger um, because I, I know there are just so many people who believe in this. Yeah. And continue to build education around it. I mean, when people really understand uh, so many Hoosiers in the past few years have been affected by flooding 
um, by, you know, damage to their properties, to their communities, somewhere near them. Um, and we're going to see more of that. We're going to see a lot more of that because of climate change. And taking away protections for wetlands just exacerbates that. So when exactly. people understand, when more people understand that when it comes down to it was primarily the home building industry had that much sway in the state house to be able to do away with protections that help protect people's homes from flooding, right. let alone our water resources and our natural areas protecting them and the biodiversity and so many reasons it's important to protect our wetlands. Um, but just that very personal uh, property protection issue, property rights issue. Um, we need more people to understand that. Right. Well, profit making, um, you know, is really the, the key there. Um, so they're not, uh, so concerned about property as just profit, I'm afraid. But, and, and it's true, um, I, I have spoken to many people um, in construction uh, who just don't get it. And I don't, I don't understand. They say, well, you know, if I cause something here, it'll just be a flood on my property. So it'll just be my problem. And mm -hmm. it's like, no, no, it really affects everybody. <laughs> it's all connected. It flows downhill somewhere, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, so, Hopefully, hopefully, yes, we'll have to get more young people involved. And it is great to see in Indiana, I've, um, you know, spoken with um, Confront Climate Change as a group. Um, and of course, now there is a newly established um, environmental pack to support environmental right. candidates, which yeah. is really exciting to see. And, um, and I'm speaking with more and more um, young, um, young people who are interested in this. I mean, they don't even it's not even like they're in an environmental group. Like this is something they just take, they assume that everybody, you know, feels this way. So there's, there's, you know, yeah. young uh, rural Democrats. Well, and but of course they believe in, you know, protecting wetlands and, and all of that, that just being young um, uh, gives them that sort of a position. So, so yeah. we need to get more young people involved and we need to educate, um, you know, us old people. Um, a little more, I think. Yeah. So um, this is this is so such a treat to talk to you about this. Um, again, um, I'm glad to hear of your optimism after leaving uh, COP26. Um, you know, uh, the young people were not happy, and uh, and I'm I'm really you know looking for them to really pick it up. Uh, they're becoming much and more and more uh, activist. Uh, so just totally not related. There's been a second day in Muncie at the high school where they had to close the school and do e-learning because 300 students walked out in protest because they were not allowed to display their Black Lives Matter sign in the classroom. I hadn't heard that. Wow. So, yeah, so I just, yeah. I just, you know, just want to run up there and give them all a big hug. Um, so <laughs> good job. It. You yeah. know, good job, kids. I'll, so, I'll meet you Muncie. We can hug them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we hug them all. So, um, so I thought that was really terrific. I love seeing young people, you know, just exercise their power. Uh, they have the power and they just need to use it. So, yeah. and there's certainly yeah. lots to, you know, I can't imagine being a young person now, you know, know. in the way things are. So, yeah, the frustration anyway. I feel, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, great. So, um, so we're almost out of time, but I, I want to ask you for any parting words of wisdom that you could leave with us. We so, so look forward to seeing you in the legislature again next year and, um, you know, continuing your great work, but words of wisdom. Oh, well, first, I, I don't know if I have words of wisdom, but I will, I just want to say thank you, Deb, for lifting up, um, important messages in this way that you've been doing for quite a while now. I appreciate it. Um, and in particular women 
<laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, in politics, that's terrific. And I applaud you uh, and, and thank you. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, I think it's kind of the common sense stuff. Um, engage in, I mentioned the coalitions. I just want to lift that up again. Obviously, voting and engagement with campaigns that, you know, this ne next election cycle is going to be really important. Um, I think uh, both, you know, we've got Congress uh, in, uh, we're worried about losing Congress uh, next cycle. And um, at the state house, we have an opportunity, right? We can, we could break the supermajority in the house, um, but we need focused attention on that from folks of all ages, engaging the political process, really understanding how things work. Um, so, you know, reach out to your legislators, um, reach out to your local political party that helps with your issues, which is going to be the Democrat party. <laughs> yes. Yes. And get involved. Good. Good. And uh, yeah. So, and, and I will be so excited to see, um, and I love it that you are on this mission to make sure that, uh, the money that comes in is going to be transparent. That's going to be spent in a transparent way and allocated, you know, according to the wishes of Hoosiers. And, and I will, I'm right behind you. I'll be right behind <laughs> you on that one. So, thank all right. You. Thank you all so right. much, Carrie. Um, thank you again, uh, Representative Hamilton from uh, House District 87. Uh, great to see you again. So, and I'm so proud of all the work you're doing. It's just amazing. Just amazing. Oh, thank you, Deb. So glad to be here. <laughs>